You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, 2021 Quiz Show! We've run out of names. Usually we call it the Quiz Show Show. Yeah, but there was like the Quiz Show Show, Wrath of the Quiz Show Show, Son of the Wrath of the Quiz Show Have Show. Have we done We had Revenge yeah. of the Quiz Show Show, Return of the Quiz Show Is Show. Be, shouldn't there be like Quiz Show Return? I don't know, like a Rocky Return. We could be Quiz Show like XP. Yeah. This is now Quiz Show XP. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you want to give a clean take of that? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Life, the universe, and everything else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. I love you, Ashlyn. (laughs) (laughs) I will be your host with dubious qualifications tonight. And with me today, I have Jem Newman. Hi. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Lauren Bailey. Hi. And three of us have prepared quizzes for you today. You'll find out who didn't later on in the show. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> it did sound pretty ominous yeah. there. <laughs> One of us is going to die yeah. <laughs> three quarters of the way through. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. We said we wanted to up our listenership, right? <laughs> A dramatic viral stunt is exactly what we need. <laughs> So we're going to sandwich these quizzes uh, with the bummer in the middle. Guess who? Uh, so first up, we have a quiz from Lauren. I really vacillated on what to make my quiz about. First of all, I had thoughts of doing one on all the uh, recorded versions of the Requiem Mass. But Ashlyn said that was too niche. I did. I'm like, that's a big fat zero for me right there. (laughs) Yeah. And then what was the next one that I wanted to talk about? Oh, Stardew Valley. But I figured Laura would get left out. Yes. So, who likes eels? Do you know what that sound is, Highness? Those are the shrieking eels. I mean, I don't have a strong eel opinion, to be honest. (laughs) I feel like if this is one of those quizzes where you had like eels on one side and don't like eels on the other side with like, I'm neutral about eels in the middle, I would put the slider a little bit toward I'm negative about eels. (laughs) (laughs) Is it because of the slimy? And and the the sushi with eels is always bad, but it's in so many things. And is that unagi? Unagi. Unagi. Yeah. 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 And and they just seem like they would bite me if they had the chance. They do seem angry. I, f- I feel like most things <laughs> would, would, would bite us given yeah. the chance. You're so going to bite my them. My last quiz I did was on Cincinnati Zoo animal facts, right? Mm-hmm. One of their favorite things to say is people always ask them, no matter what animal they're demoing, is it going to bite me? And they say, if it has a mouth, it could bite you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it will bite you. But I like eels. I mean, as we're saying, obviously not in a culinary way, but I think they're neat. If I ate meat, I would most likely try eel. 
And the food that I make for SCA events would probably be much more authentic to what folks actually ate in southern Norway in the 10th century. Because eels were a staple food in northern Europe for hundreds of years. Probably thousands. That is true. Anyway, my quiz is mostly about the interactions of eels and humans in the Middle Ages. Surprise. And it's mostly gleaned from the awesome Twitter feed of the surprised eel historian, PhD, Dr. John Wyatt Greenlee. He studies the histories of eels and makes maps, and he is a general, all-around great follow. So thanks to Dr. Greenlee for all of the eel knowledge. As his area of eel expertise is mostly England, so are most of my questions. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you you failed to insert a pause for groan there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, are we ready? Mm -hmm. So the hardest question is first. Oh, good. What series of wars was the partial cause of Charles II of England's ban on the import of foreign eels? It was a ban that he then had his purchaser circumvent for his own personal eel-eating needs. Well, of course he did. Of course. Divine right of eels. Yeah. (laughs) So was it A, the Anglo-French Wars, B, the Anglo-Dutch Wars, C, the Anglo-Spanish Wars, or D, the Anglo-Anglo Wars, like the English Civil War? Charles II, you said? Yes. This isn't a question about eels. This is a question about whether you know enough British history to know which of those wars happened during Charles II's reign. <laughs> I feel like Anglo-Spain, because there's probably lots of eels around Spain. Okay, wait. These all happened in the same 10-year span. Of course they did. I'm going to go French. Anglo-French. Why not? Okay, Ashlyn, are you sticking with Spanish? Yep. Was Cromwell... I feel like the English Civil War, that would not have had that much of an impact on eel imports? Uh, yeah, Spanish. Sure. All right. Well, you're all wrong. Uh. <laughs> it was the Anglo-Dutch Wars. Ah, uh, okay. I bet on France having more eels than the Netherlands. No, <laughs> I would have put ne- Dutch last. The Netherlands were a big eel country. Charles II imposed the ban not only because of the war, but to help revive English eel fisheries but only the Dutch could make ships that could transport live eels. So Chuck had to get a special dispensation from the Parliament to buy a Dutch ship, and it turned into a whole thing, including the Dutch king banning him from importing eels for the rest of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. All right, we ready for number two? Like I said, that was the hardest one. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Number two. Eels were measured in sticks. Literally. You jammed your eels onto a stick, and that's how you transported them. How many eels were in a standard stick? How, in what direction do you jam them onto the stick? Okay, they're not, they're not like spiked. They are, you put it through the head and the eels are dangling down. Oh, okay. So you, you can have multiple eels mm-hmm. on a stick. There. Yeah. So A, okay. 12, B, 15, C, 25, or D, 30 eels per stick. How big is a stick? As many as it took to hold a stick of eels. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, it's so circular. <laughs> well, Welcome to Weights and Measures in the Middle Ages, Laura. Like, e- even modern, like, like, how much does a kilogram weigh? Well, it weighs this much, the kilogram. <laughs> yeah, they keep that special kilogram in France. <laughs> yeah. So 12, 15, 25, or 30 eels per stick. Doesn't Can we matter. just go in any order? Yep. So I'm not I, keeping I track. actually definitely read this fact once, and I'm trying to remember... And I'm not certain, but I, I I thought it was 20. I was going to say 20 if it wasn't multiple choice, so I'm going to say 25. 
And yeah, there's a lot of weird eel history. I can't wait to see what else comes up in this. Like 12 or 20 are pretty standard things to use for what what do you call like gross measures like like group Literally measurements gross measures, yeah. yeah um because they they both divide evenly into into multiple factors uh which make selling things in fractions easy that's why you know dozens are are a thing that people talk about uh anyway uh yeah go, let's go with 12 seems small but i'll go with 12 laura 12 oh. 15 25 30 both of these reasonings sound good I feel like Ashlyn's have- reasoning being I seem to recall twenty, but that's not yeah, an option, so I'll pick something near us. No, 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 no. Like the I I think it's gonna be a larger number than I I would rationally choose for something like that, because twenty-five eels seems like a lot of eels, but I also don't know how big these eels are. Because I really don't know much about eels. So I'll go with twenty-five as well, because why not? Alright. Both Laura and Ashlyn get a point. Yeah. That tweet I read was useful. (laughs) There are 25 eels in a stick and 10 such sticks in a bind. And yes, it was a stick with 25 eels hanging off of it. I'll show you pictures later. It's gross. Prior to adequate coinage, rents could be paid in livestock or food or any agreed upon currencies, right? Mm -hmm. Eels were plentiful and in demand and eel rents were a common thing in England, petering off to the end of the 17th century. An eel rent is just what it says on the stick. Pay your rent in a certain number of eels per year. 3,000 eels for monastery land or whatever per year. And a pair of scarlet pants. Scarlet was a type of cloth. It also happened to be red, which is why they got the name for the color. It was often red, but not always. So it's confusing when you see things like a scarlet petticoat in a manifest of some woman's belongings. It's not always red. (laughs) But it was made of scarlet, Mm -hmm. which was a process for the wool. Dr. Greenlee has an interactive map, because he's a map maker as well, mm-hmm. of documented eel rents from the 10th through 17th century. And it's really cool. You can check which centuries you want to see. They come up with different dots of documented eel rents in England. A lot of them were paid by or to, like I said, monasteries or other clerical bodies. All right, here's a non-historical eel question for number three. What is a juvenile eel called? A, a tadpole. B, a fry. C, a peeling or D, an elver. So baby fish are called fry. Mm-hmm. And eels are fish. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. For, yes. For all correct. intents and purposes, e- eels are fish. Eels are a type of fish, fish. Yes. yes. So that could work. But I feel like eels are going to have their own name. And I don't remember exactly what the last one is, but that one sounds fun. Elver. Elver. So yeah, I'll go with that one. Laura says elver. Ashlyn? I'm also going to go with Elver. Yeah, I don't think they're fry, even though that makes sense. What was the first one again? Tadpole. Tadpole, yeah, that's not right. And C was peeling. I mean, they are kind of tadpole-shaped. Peeling doesn't sound familiar, but that's probably what it's going to be now. I don't think the, the medieval... This is the name still in use today, so... Right, but it is common to have taxonomic names that do not reflect the true cladistic history. Absolutely, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, but I'm going with Elver. I'm also going with Elver. And you all get a point. Woohoo! Yay! A juvenile eel is called an Elver. A tadpole, as we said, is a juvenile frog. A fry is a group down for eels, so including, you know, baby fish. Mm-hmm. A group of eels is called a fry. Oh. Or a surprise of eels. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am shocked! Shocked! Well, not that shocked. And peeling is a word with the word eel in it that I thought sounded plausible. 
<laughs> Before the elver stage, eels are transparent babies, also known, unsurprisingly, as glass eels. Mm. Baby eels look nothing like adult eels and were previously mistaken for different types of fish altogether. Cool. That's pretty cool. I can't say I have any idea what a baby eel looks like, so I will go look that up. Mm-hmm. I've been Googling eels all day. <laughs> all right, number four. Back to the history of eels. Sorry, folks. <laughs> well, kind of the history of eels anyway. Everyone here knows we don't know exactly how eels breed, right? Right. Yes. Sure. According to friend of the podcast and fish scientist Aaron Spice, they all go home to the Sargasso Sea to spawn with any eel they meet. Do we really need to watch? <laughs> <laughs> that was not a true eel fact, just to make that clear. Yes. I just wanted to include her in the podcast. <laughs> so we don't know how eels reproduce, but how did Aristotle believe that eels reproduced? Hmm. A. They flake off bits of skin against rocks and each flake becomes a new eel. B. They expand and grow new eels alongside themselves, popping them off like mogwai. That's obviously not how he expressed it. C. They grow spontaneously out of the mud. Or D. They require privacy and it's not for mortal man to know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna go with mud. It's mud. Yeah, they were big into spontaneous creations. But the, the skin flake thing also sounds familiar somehow. Yeah. But I'm going with mud. Yeah. It does. I'm also going with spontaneous generation, though, yeah. because that's spontaneous like generation. the Greeks were all about spontaneous generation. They're <laughs> I mean, all right. Also, yeah. Okay. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Go us. So Aristotle believed that they grew spontaneously out of the mud. Pliny the Elder thought they flaked off babies like oh. Andrew. Oh, Pliny. <laughs> the other two answers I made up. Yeah. yeah. All right. Question five. More science. There are f- over 400 eel species, but which one of the following is not actually an eel? A, the electric eel, B, the moray eel, C, the European eel, or D, the conger eel. Are these all real things? Yes. I haven't heard of that last one. (laughs) Yeah, conger eels are very much a thing. The biggest eel in the world is a conger eel. I am going to go with moray eel. That is my initial thought as well. And I've never heard of the conger eel, but based on your explanation, I feel like it is in fact an eel because you said the biggest eel in the world is a conger eel. So if that was actually a fish, then why would you lie like that? Lauren? I'm a horrible person. (laughs) They had this planned out in advance. No kidding, right? Yeah, I'm going to go with moray eel. I also think it's moray eel because of their skull. They have that double skull thing going on. But maybe it's electric, but I'm going with moray. When the moon hits your eye, <laughs> like a big pizza pie, that's a moray. But unfortunately, you all get this wrong. <laughs> the electric eel electric? is not okay. an eel. Is it? Because I is feel it? like I remember, is it neither electric nor an eel? No, it's very electric. Natural classifications are generally pure bullshit, mm-hmm. but electric eels are not true eels. They lack the dorsal fin, and they surface to breathe air. Well, oh. true, e- true eels breathe through their skin. Eels don't have gills? They have like a an air sac under their skin. Oh, I didn't go I'm, into. I know nothing yeah. about eels, like nothing at all. So this, all of this, is very surprising. Okay, the electric eel is a long freshwater fish, and it has no teeth. Eels have teeth. Great. Catfish are their closest relatives. Neat. That's very interesting. Number six. Which worldwide event led to the decline of English eel-based rents, as we talked about before, and the rise of more land animal-based rents? <laughs> <laughs> so we're still talking like Middle Ages here. Okay. A, the Anglo-Dutch Wars, B, the Black Plague, 
C. The invasion of North America post-1492. D. The spontaneous migration of perfectly normal beasts. Boy. That's a Douglas Adams shout-out. Shout out. <laughs> so that was a gimme. So A, B, or C. I feel like the plague is the obvious choice. So I think it was because of a shortage. And we know that the Anglo-Dutch wars resulted in a decrease of imports. Because that was in the first weird question. So I'm going with the Anglo-Dutch wars. <laughs> because that would have made their less eels available. And therefore people would have switched to paying their rents with something more available. Jim? I'm going to go with the Americas. Laura gets it. Woo! The Black Plague brought about a decline in human population and the subsequent alteration of land usage to more livestock farming. Mm. In the Netherlands, the opposite happened because outbreaks of plague drove people out of the cities and into the swampy countryside where they grew massive eel-based businesses. This led to the events in question one. Really, the history of England interacting with any other part of the world is fascinating in its minutia, but boringly repetitive. <laughs> Always with the war and the colonization and the mucking everything up. And the eels. So many eels. All right, we're on question seven. Home woo, stretch, folks. Woo, woo. Which well-known English author mentions eels more than any other fish? A, the venerable Bede. B, Francis Bacon. C, William Shakespeare. Or D, John Keats. I'm going to go Shakespeare. I like lowbrow stuff. And eels seem like they're going to make good, like, lowbrow fodder. <laughs> so I'm going to go with that. They are the food of the people? Exactly. I don't remember any eels in the Shakespeare I've read, but I've read very little Shakespeare. I'm going with, what was it, Keats? Don't know who that is. Going with that. <laughs> <laughs> Bead, Francis Bacon. Bacon. Bacon and eels, traditional dish. Very Spanish. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> Laura pulls it out again. Woo! It's old Billy Shakes himself. Dang. Most eel mentions were metaphor-based. Most famously, to me at least, was in King Lear, Act 2, Scene 4, where the fool tells Lear the tale of the cockney fishwife who put live eels in her pie and then beat them until they lay down. This was also the scene, of course, I have to give a personal history, that first interested 14-year-old Lauren in the great vowel shift, language rebracketing, and the dramatic use of a wise fool character. <laughs> also eel pie. You could say that eels are responsible for my interest in linguistics, but that's a hell of a stretch. <laughs> Speaking of hell of a stretch, um, what if I pretend to subscribe to the Baconian no. theory of Shakespeare authorship? This Do I get a point? A, <laughs> this is a bacon-free zone. The Baconian theory is bunk. It is nonsense. Agreed. Don't you dare bring that up to me. <laughs> I like the hedging of your bets, though. All right, number eight. Going back to fish crime from a few episodes ago. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Phelps Bondarov. Illegal eel smuggling is an ecological and financial nightmare, especially for the critically endangered European eel. About what percent of European eels are trafficked to Asian countries per year? A, 10%, which is 1.6 billion euros. 15%, which is 2.4 billion euros. C, 20%, which is 3.2 billion euros. Or D, 25% which is 4 billion euros. So just to clarify, is this a percentage of like total eel sales or fishing, or is this a percentage of the total eel population? Total eel population. Every year? So or every year the population is declining due to trafficking? But of, of like glass eels and elvers. Of that year's... Clutch, or yeah. whatever the word for fish is. <laughs> yeah. That year's brood. Yeah. 10, 15, 20, or 25%. 20. 
I'm going to go 25. 25. Laura is like this eel magician. So Laura and Jem get that. <laughs> I just wanted a, a little bit of hope. Magil show. No. <laughs> Not even close. Nearly a quarter of all elvers going into European waterways are trafficked to be grown in ponds and sold a few years later. This is an ecological disaster, as European eels are a vital part of water life cycles. Their numbers have dropped over 90% in the Thames since 1980, and the European eel is now considered critically endangered. Of course, not all of the drop is smuggling-based, but is also created by broken migratory pathways and bycatch issues. Really, we're just screwing up the planet for every single species. Number nine. Eels were London street food up through the 19th century. What was the most common way English people got their eels to go? A. Cooked in butter and sold hot in a cup. B. Smoked and wrapped in flatbread. C. Dried into jerky and sold in sheets. Or D. Baked into a pie. These all sound so awful. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's a toss-up between the jerky and the pie. I'm I'm thinking there's going to be a lot of eel hand pies. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with pie. I'm gonna go with jerky. Eel pie. That's a uh, that's a zero all around. Oh no! Hot buttered eels were the go to street food. I was really considering that, but then I'm like, are they gonna use that much butter? I thought it was gonna be a technicality that actually they used lard or tallow or nope. something like that. But butter, because yeah, butter, butter seems, seems like very luxurious. rich. Yeah, hot buttered eels. That's what it was called. Hot buttered eels were the go to street food of nineteenth century English sounding name ever. nineteenth century England. Yeah, I, I'm just imagining like all of the kids who. Just just eat like hot buttered noodles, yeah. Uh, but but you know, but, eel form. but, but yeah, like 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 a gah. Yeah. <laughs> I like a customer who knows what she wants. Well, an eel is like one large buttered noodle. Right? <laughs> it was chopped up into bite-sized pieces. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the four most common street foods in London in the 19th century were coffee, tea, dog meat, hot buttered eels. Spanish folk liked and still like smoked eel, but I'm not sure about the flatbread part. Eel pie was a thing, but probably wasn't street food. And I don't know if you can make eel jerky. Probably, but it might just be leather. You know the secret to making fish jerky, don't you, Marty? No idea. Feed them coffee. (laughs) See, I'm really disappointed because dried fish and things like that, Mm -hmm. these are very common things. Or like smoked smoked dried fish so that turns into a jerky type consistency. That seems like a thing. But you gotta think of 19th century England. Hot buttered eels. That was such a horrible place to exist. I just, every time I hear more about it, it's like, what? There are no redeeming qualities to this The place. streets ran with sewage. And there was hot, hot buttered, buttered eels. eels. <laughs> can you imagine those smells together? Oh my yes. God. Yes, I can. <laughs> All right, number 10. I'm feeling a little silly, so let's bring it home. In the movie version of The Princess Bride... The channel between Florin and Gilder is full of the shrieking eels. In the book version, while shrieking eels are mentioned, the channel is full of A. Silent but deadly eels B. Sharks C. Carnivorous snapping turtles or D. It was a trick question. It was the shrieking eels. Silent but deadly? Sharks. Mm, I don't no, it's not silent but deadly. <laughs> um, 
I never read the book. I've just seen the movie several times. Several. Many times. Many times. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it was a trick question. It's D. Laura is like this hidden eel master. <laughs> Technically I'm a shark master yeah. there. <laughs> it was the sharks. The book version has sharks in the channel. The movie rightly changed it to the Shrieking Eels, because that's way cooler. And it doesn't require the visual of Wallace Shawn as Vicini filling a cup with his own blood to enrage the sharks. Because that's what he would do. He threw it into the water to make uh. them frenzy. So that's my eel quiz. Again, special thanks to the surprised eel historian, Dr. John Wyatt Greenlee, for researching the historical relationships between humans and eels, and posting them all on his Twitter for the world to see. His handle is at GreenleeJW. Of course, all mistakes or misreadings are my own. There are a lot of conservation efforts to save the European eel, and I'll put some in the show notes. Cool. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks. That was that was a fun, unexpected eel-based quiz. It was a slippery <laughs> little thing, wasn't it? Oh, <laughs> God, you just had to, didn't you? Especially once, once you ladle that butter on. I didn't put any questions about eel slime, so I was very restrained. So at the end of the first round, uh, Ashlyn has three points, I have three points, and Laura has seven. Dang. <laughs> That's it. That's really? it. I thought we were keeping pace a lot more. No. Oh, no, you, you broke away with your like yeah. hidden eelery. Honestly, that last one, it's just like, if it was written in the 80s, sharks is the answer. Bring us all down, Jam. With pleasure. <laughs> it's what I live for. So I spent a... Fun little afternoon reading the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Yay. And uh, I'll be quoting heavily from the summary of the report uh, for policymakers uh, throughout this little quiz. Why don't we start with a fun one? Just the, the extent of current warming. So, question one. Just looking at the last decade, that's 2011 through 2020, how much warmer was the average global surface temperature when compared to the baseline of uh, the early industrial period, so uh, 1850 to 1900? So how much warmer are we on average over the last decade compared to the early industrial baseline? Is it A, 0.2 degrees centigrade, B, 0.5 degrees, C, 0.8 degrees, or D, more than one degree. And uh, I will go Ashlyn first. So I thought it was one degree. So I'm worried that that is more than one degree is the end. So now I want to go with 0.8. I'm going to go with 0.8. No, I'm going to go with more than one. <laughs> okay, Ashlyn goes with more than one. I'm sorry, audience, you don't need to hear my whole thought process, but here it is. Laura. More than one. Lauren. Trifecta of awfulness, more than one degree. The answer is indeed D, more than one degree centigrade. Global surface temperature was about 1.09 degrees higher. The 95% uh, confidence interval was 0.95 to 1.2 in uh, the decade from 2011 through 2020, when compared to the period from 1850 to 1900, with larger increases over land, 1.6 degrees, than over the ocean, 0.9. But, come on, is it really our fault? 
Question two. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, can we just say yes and move on? <laughs> of the 1.09 degree centigrade increase in global surface temperature, how much of this warming is attributable to human activity, according to the IPCC? Is it A, 50%, B, 90%, C, 98%, or D, 100%? And we'll start with Laura. 98. Laura goes with C. Lauren. C, 98%. Ashlyn. 98. You're all correct. Yay! Yay for human activity! The likely range of total human-caused global surface temperature increase when compared to the early industrial baseline is between 0.8 degrees and 1.3 degrees, and the, the best estimate is 1.07 degrees, which is 98%. Now, as a result of this warming, the global mean sea level has been rising, and this has been going on since industrialization. The IPCC estimates that between 1901 and 1971, sea level was rising an average of 1.3 millimeters every year. So that's for the first 70 years of the 20th century. 1.3 millimeters each year. Question three. What is the best estimate of the current rate of sea level rise? Is it A, 1.3 millimeters per year? B, 1.9 millimeters per year? C, 2.9 millimeters per year? Or D, 3.7 millimeters per year? Lauren. 3.7 millimeters per year. Ashlyn. 2.9. Laura. 2.9. Lauren is correct. Mm. <laughs> Pessimism takes it. Oh, John. The average rate of sea level rise increased to 1.9 millimeters per year between 1971 and 2006, then further increased to 3.7 millimeters per year between 2006 and 2018, which is the latest available estimate. Now, it's not all about temperature and sea level. Question four. How has climate change affected extreme weather events? Since 1950, A. Both hot and cold extreme weather events have become more frequent and more intense. B. Hot weather events have become more frequent and intense, but cold weather events have become less frequent and less intense. C. Hot weather events have become more frequent and intense, but cold weather events have remained unchanged. Or D, there has been no discernible pattern in changes to extreme weather events. We'll start with Ashlyn. A. Hot and cold are more frequent and extreme. Everything bad. Okay. Laura. I've detected your theme. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with C. But hot, hot weather cold or... is still cold, like it was, but hot is getting hotter. Okay, and Lauren? A. A. Nobody gets a point. Is it D? It is B. <gasps> hot weather events have become more frequent and intense, but cold weather events have become less frequent and less intense. That does not feel true here. 
Well, they measured this in California. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this, Got down to ten degrees, and everybody froze. This so. is worldwide, right, right? So the the temperature on average is warming, and this is resulting in less frequent cold snaps, in addition to more frequent hot weather events. Wait, wasn't there just a giant frost event in Texas this year? But it's less frequent. Yeah. Trends are not smooth. Human-induced climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. Evidence of observed changes in extremes, such as heat waves, heavy precipitation, droughts, and tropical cyclones, and, in particular, their attribution to human influence has strengthened since the previous IPCC assessment. Now, let's look to the future. Question 5. If we turn things around now and move immediately to reduce emissions year over year, how long would it take for discernible differences in global surface temperature to emerge? So how long until we noticed the effect of immediately stopping everything and making things better? Is it A, 10 years, B, 20 years, C, 50 years, or D, 100 years? And we'll start with Laura. C. Lauren? I also say C. Ashlyn? 50 years. C. Again, nobody gets a point. It's oh. 20 years. Okay. Really? Um, I was I was thinking that you, it was not going to be Because it's still, it's still going to get worse for a significant number of years before it, is. it gets better. Even in the most optimistic projections considered by the IPCC, in which we drastically cut CO2 emissions immediately and somehow reach net zero CO2 emissions by 2050, global surface temperature will continue to increase until at least the mid-century. So the earliest we could see discernible changes in even like the trajectory of things changing before we could tease that out from year over year noise would be the 20 year horizon. We could see it before 50 years though. That's only if you consider the most optimistic projections. This is so depressing, Jeff. What <laughs> is wrong with you? <laughs> let's look at what the IPCC considers the intermediate scenario where we somehow cap CO2 emissions at the current levels until the middle of the century. So this is not the most depressing scenario, this is the intermediate scenario. These are questions 6 and 7. If we somehow manage to do that, what is the best estimate of the global surface temperature compared to the early industrial baseline by the middle and then by the end of the century? We're looking at our intermediate scenario now. If we cap emissions until the middle of the century, we somehow stop increasing year over year. What amount of global surface temperature increase over the early industrial baseline will we see by the middle of the century? And what increase will we see by the end of the century? There are no options for this. I just want two numbers from each of you. And we'll be using prices Right rules. Closest without going over. So, assuming emissions stay where they are, how much do you think the global surface temperature will have risen over the early industrial baseline in the medium term, 2041 to 2060, and by the end of the century, which is the two decades 2081 to 2100? As a reminder, we are currently at about 1.1 degrees above the baseline. So, Lauren. Above the baseline, 2.5 and 3. 
2.5, and 3. Ashlyn. 1.75 and 2.5. Laura. 2.25 and 3.1. And I designed a question where pessimism would not result in points. Ashlyn takes it. Mm. I'll go for 99 cents. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I was impressed that, that Laura who obviously has not seen a lot of Prices Right, uh, <laughs> did not go 1.76 and 2.51. That's a dick move. <laughs> so the, the answers are, uh, in the intermediate scenario, uh, they, they ran a whole bunch of uh, models. In the intermediate scenario, where we cap emissions at the current levels until the middle of the century, by mid-century, we will see an increase of an additional one degree. So that's a total increase of two uh, degrees centigrade over early industrial baselines. And that will that increase will slow, but it will continue to increase to 2.7 degrees centigrade above early industrial baselines by the end of the century. Now, let's look at the scenario that I personally consider a little more likely. <laughs> what if we don't stop CO2 emissions, but instead continue to increase emissions year over year, doubling them Uh, over the next 30 years. So, questions 8 and 9. If we do nothing, and CO2 emissions double by 2050, what is the best estimate of the global surface temperature increase over the early industrial baseline by the middle and end of the century? Same deal. I want two numbers from each of you, starting this time with Ashlyn. Two degrees. No, two and a quarter. Okay. Because it was a little bit higher than what I said. Mm-hmm. Two and a quarter. And by and the end of the century? Three. Three. Okay. Laura. Uh, I don't know. So I'm going to say 2.5 and 3.4. Okay. And Lauren. What were my numbers for the previous two questions? 2.5 and 3. That's correct. We'll let those ride. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, looks like for question 8, the mid-century, Ashland takes it because the actual answer is 2.4 degrees centigrade. Ooh. And for the... Wait, what, didn't I, what did I say? 2. You said 2.5. <laughs> you went over. over. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> And for uh, end of the century, Laura takes it with her pessimism. She guessed that it would be 3.4 degrees above the early industrial baseline. The actual estimates have it at 4.4 degrees. So these are the the worst case scenario estimates, or as I like to call it, the gen case scenario. (laughs) The Arctic is likely to be practically sea ice free in September at least once before 2050, in every single model considered by the IPCC report. So they could not find a simulation in which uh, we didn't have uh, no ice in the Arctic in September. There are no good scenarios. Yeah. The IPCC would also like to remind you that it is virtually certain that the land surface will continue to warm more than the ocean surface, about one and a half times more. 
Uh, I have uh, all of the projections here. We're going to skip over those because Laura is depressed enough already. We all are. Don't just put this on <laughs> Laura. Uh, so last question. Relative to 1900, how much is global sea level projected to rise by 2100? Is it A, between 10 and 20 centimeters? B, between 30 and 50 centimeters? C, between 0.5 and 1 meter? Or D, 2 to 3 meters? We'll start with Laura. Well, obviously, let's just get the doomsday done. 2 to 3 meters. Okay. Uh, Lauren. B. 30 to 50 centimeters? Yep. Okay. And this is by what year? By 2100, compared to the baseline at the beginning of the last century, compared to 1900. 30 to 50 centimeters. No points. It is uh, between 50 and 100 centimeters. C. Okay. So we're looking... I uh, two to three meters sounded like way too much. Yeah. But we are staring down the barrel of potentially a one meter sea level uh, rise uh, by the end of the century. Due to instability in Arctic ice sheets, we may see sea level rises of more than one and a half meters by uh, 2100. And in their high emissions models, the IPCC could not rule out a sea level rise of more than 15 meters. Wow. Because there is significant instability. And if some of those Antarctic ice sheets collapse into the ocean, that accelerates warming faster yeah. and faster and faster. So that is where we stand right now. I'm going to tally up the scores here. Next time we do a quiz show, you have to do something about bunnies. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, seriously. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking of doing one about pirates. Why uh, the f*** did you do that? <laughs> because I thought this was more important. No, 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 it's not, like, yes, obviously it's very important, but, like, and you wonder why we have no listeners. <laughs> oh, oh. Hit me where it hurts. Yes. Hit him right it in the blueberry. It was well done, but Jesus, Jem. Okay, I'm it's still. Like the movies you like to watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still adding up the scores here. We all lose. Yeah. That's the point of your f***ing quiz. I'm sorry, yeah. you have to bleep so much in this. It doesn't matter how many points we get. We're all f Here's what I like to think. People are pretty good at adapting when we're really, like, put up to the deadline. I like to have a little bit of hope that when things really start going balls to the wall... The billionaires will step up and give us, yeah, I don't know. They're f***ing trying to go to space, Ashlyn. Oh, I totally understand, <laughs> but I I don't know. Maybe solar power will still save us. I don't know. The guillotines are hungry. <laughs> <laughs> like, we we won against the ozone layer. The ozone layer is better than it was. And interestingly, the hole in the ozone layer has contributed 0 0.1 to 0 0.2 degrees of cooling. Over the last uh, over the last few decades, uh, which has helped offset carbon emissions mm, a smidge, <laughs> a smidge. There's an interaction there, but uh, it is overwhelmed by continuing uh, uh, carbon and you know to some extent other greenhouse gas emissions. Carbon's the the big one though. Ashlyn won this round with five points. Uh, Laura and Lauren both had three. 
That puts Laura in the lead with 10 points. Yay! Ashlyn just behind with 8 points. And uh, Jem and Lauren are trailing at three points each, but of course we have each uh, done a quiz, so I've had fewer opportunities for points. We will normalize the scores at the end. I'm at my maximum points and I'm not even in the lead. Not good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, spoiler for my something nice, but I have been participating in a challenge where teams of fans of various 80s and 90s things compete to get the most miles over 10 days. So, either running or walking. And my team is the team with the power. The labyrinth-themed team. Uh, and so we've been doing some trivia in the chat over the last few days, and I decided to do a quiz all about Jim Henson movies. Oh, fun. And fun facts I found in their Wikipedia pages. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it should be a fun time. Nice. I'm still sad that you don't have your team hashtag as David Bowie's codpiece. <laughs> we have Run Magic Run and hashtag Jog of Eternal Stench. Nice. <laughs> Uh, and I, the questions are in order of movie release date. So starting with the earliest. Oh, okay. In the Muppet movie, the closing <laughs> reprise of Rainbow Connection features a huge crowd of moving Muppets. In fact, almost every Muppet ever made to that point. Uh, this was filmed in the late 70s and yep. released in 79. Mm-hmm. How many Muppets were there? Were there 75? 125, 250, or 400 Muppets? 75. I'll do 125, so B. I haven't watched this movie in decades. I've been trying to convince the kids to watch it with me, and they have not yet taken the bait. So, mm. Fun fact, Ashlyn dislikes the Muppets. I hate Muppets so much. Really? Really? Yeah. Why? Why? They just irritate me. Especially the baby Muppets. I just hate them. Like, would that include, like, the labyrinth puppets? No. No, just no, like the like, like the Muppets, Muppets. Yeah, okay. their personality. Like so like S- Sesame yeah. Street too, or I just find them irritating. The characters. No, I love okay. Sesame Street. Oh, so just like the core Muppets, just like Muppets. Kermit and oh. Piggy, especially. It. Yeah, I hate them. Hmm. <laughs> is, is hard to like. Oh, and you can't get away from her. I find Sesame Street incredibly irritating. Hmm? You know, healthy for child I haven't mind seen development any of the or stuff whatever. from like the past. 25 years so it's been fine i think largely like i haven't watched every single episode but but mr dress up was always my favorite mm. yes. i would watch mr dress up over sesame street any day yeah no i think the the characters on the newer sesame street are not as good like i miss like louis oh yeah <laughs> well but, but i Mer- americans didn't get louis he was a canadian only muppet yeah, they didn't get basil either sesame street weekday morning on cbc television oh wow they had because um, Louis was created for French. I think there was a yeah. there's probably a Spanish speaking Muppet in yeah. Yeah. in the states. I know, but they, like some of so they have like like a magic fairy Muppet now. That's like one of the main Muppets, like pandering. classic and- Well, yeah, but pandering, but like the female Muppets, the female Sesame Street Muppets were pretty like boring and interchangeable back in, back in our day. So at yeah. least they have like I don't actually have an opinion about this. <laughs> How many Muppets? I said 125, so B. Is B 125? Yeah. I'll go B as well. 
You're all wrong. <gasps> there was 250 Muppets. It was that many. Good yeah, Lord. So many Muppets. That's um, so But, much. and they were all moving during that big shot, apparently. I don't think I've ever seen this. And oh, we're fixing that this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the Muppet Show fan club newsletter answered the question, how did they do it? Apparently, there were 250 Muppets and 150 puppeteers in a six-foot-deep, 17-foot-wide pit. They were recruited through the Los Angeles Guild of the Puppeteers of America, and almost every puppeteer west of the Rockies reported for duty in the pit. Whoa. <laughs> and apparently, Jim Henson himself, once all the puppeteers gathered, held like a one-day how-to-move-a-puppet-for-film, and it went well. And everything kind of was pulled off flawlessly. Cool. That's awesome. That is really cool. That must have been like the coolest puppeteer con ever. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Muppeteer is Gates McFadden. That's how she got her start was as a Muppeteer. Wow. She comes up again in this quiz. Oh, I'm sorry. Cool. <laughs> what Academy Award or awards was the Muppet movie nominated for? Uh, so I'm going to give you four options. You can choose as many of them as you like or none. Do we lose points for getting it wrong? Because otherwise, why would we not choose all of them? True. Okay. It would be minus one point for everyone that you guess and you were incorrect. Oof. Because otherwise, yes, Jim will just game it. <laughs> and there's a couple of questions like this. <laughs> okay. Can we can we have that rule just for Jim? Yeah, that's fair. Because <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us were going to uh, answer honestly and not just choose all of them. <laughs> just, I mean, logically, why would you? Because <laughs> we're playing a fun game amongst friends, Jim. <laughs> to do that okay okay best original song best actress best original score best film song and score song for sure best film i i don't know i kind of want to because it's different but also wait no this was 79 there was a star wars that came out that year <laughs> no no there was that not no, there wasn't. Oh, no. no. <laughs> 77. And 80. Oh, okay. I thought it was every two years. That's all. No. I don't... Okay. Sorry, Star Wars fans. <laughs> I know I've caused you harm. Send your letters to... Whatever. Um, okay. Song for sure. So it was song, score, film, and what was the other one? Actress. I have no idea who was even in that movie. Miss Piggy. <laughs> Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Jim Henson and Jim Henson, Frank Oz <laughs> and 150 a other people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Most of them were Jim Henson and Frank Oz, though. <laughs> oh, I don't want to do what Jim said, but that makes sense. Yeah, I'll go with best song and best score. Okay. Fun fact Frank Oz was in Star Wars. <laughs> anything that needed a voice. Well, he was Yoda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not actually Star Wars. Song, score, and film. It is song and score. Gem was confident and correct. Yeah. Uh, so, the Wikipedia page for this section is real f***ed up. And no? it had conflicting information in various parts of this one article. So mm. it really needs some editing. And there's some weird nonsense language beside the Miss Piggy entry. So if it's still there when this episode comes out, go look at it. It's strange. So I had to look it up on, like, the Muppet Wiki. 
<laughs> and cross-check it with the actual official things because at one point it says that they, that Miss Piggy won for Best Actress. That is not recorded anywhere else. <laughs> uh, except her <laughs> Wikipedia page because, of course. Right. Um, but it, it appears to have been nominated for Best Original Song and Best Original Score. They did not... Uh, the Muppets did not win an Academy Award until much later. Yeah. Jem and Laura each have two points, and Lauren has either two points or one point, depending on whether we're going to subtract one. <laughs> I, uh, Let's uh, subtract one. We should all have the same rules. Okay. Um, I had them down as having two points. Okay. You don't have to. Jem have the worst rules. <laughs> okay. Okay. You're a guest here. We're not giving him Dave rules. <laughs> we're moving on to The Dark Crystal. Ooh. Why was this movie so much darker in tone than Henson's other children's movies? Was it because he never intended for it to be a children's movie, but the execs thought adults wouldn't watch a movie with Muppets? Was it because he believed that it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid? Did he write it as a cathartic exercise while going through a divorce and never expected it to become an actual movie, but his assistant forwarded a copy to a studio that bought it immediately? Or... He didn't think it was dark or scary at all and was consistently surprised by this feedback. Uh, Laura, you get to go first this time. I really like that last one. (laughs) You didn't think it was scary? So D or A? A. B. I initially thought A, but thinking about it more, I feel like that is less likely considering the fact that the the protagonists are children. So I think I'm going to go with D. I don't recall reading that Jim Henson had ever been divorced, so... Yeah, I made that one up. (laughs) It uh, was, he believed that it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid. Mm. Lauren Mm -hmm. got the point. Nice. Mm -hmm. Well done. (laughs) That one I actually knew. (laughs) I agree. Labyrinth almost didn't get released because of a copyright claim by another author. Who was the author? Was it Roald Dahl, Shel Silverstein, Maurice Sendak, or Beverly Cleary? Shel Silverstein. Can't possibly be Beverly Cleary. She just died, eh? Like earlier this did. year. Oh, did she? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. In June, I think. End of yeah. June. Got Huxley the entire set of Beezus and Ramona books uh, for her birthday. And I was I was trying to put them in the correct order uh, and looking through the publication dates and I'm like these span so many decades yeah, yeah like, she's been writing for so long but just it's not like there are only eight of them I think or something oh. like that but there were like decade long gaps in between them and she's just like oh, I'll just write another one <laughs> royalties are running out but yeah, I write another I guess so Sorry. Um, I feel like it's probably Shel Silverstein I feel like every everything I've heard about Maurice Sendak is just that he was I, I I have trouble squaring that kind of uh, litigiousness with uh, the the image of Maurice Sendak I have in my head, which obviously bears very little resemblance to the man himself because I didn't know him. But um, who is the other one? Roll doll. Roll doll. Oh yeah, he was kind of an asshole. <laughs> um, I was balancing that versus you know, library of works. Mm-hmm. 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 Trying to think of something that would match up with it, and I'm not coming up with anything. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback. I'm gonna go with uh, Silverstein. Okay, Laura. So again, I really don't know the library of works of most of these people except Roald Dahl. So I'm just gonna go with him. 
You are all incorrect. It was Maurice Sendak. No! Yeah, so apparently the story has like more than a passing resemblance to another work that Sendak wrote where a baby is kidnapped by goblins, which is like a fairy tale trope. <gasps> oh, right! <laughs> So yeah, uh, Sendak's lawyers, I guess, had initially written like a do not make this movie, we will sue you (laughs) kind of letter. And it was eventually settled with an end credit being added that states Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sendak. So that's Mm. how they kind of settled it, which, as you say, kind of fits with your image of him not being super litigious. And you can see... Uh, Sendak's outside over there, which is the um, the goblin mm-hmm. story, and where the wild things are are shown briefly in Sarah's room at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. Which I thought is nice. Yep, outside over there, young girl named Ida who must rescue her baby sister. A totally different story. It's a, it's a <laughs> sister, not a brother. After the child has been stolen by goblins. Hmm. Which of these now famous actresses auditioned for the role of Sarah? This is another. Choose multiple if you desire. Laura Dern, Helena Bonham Carter, Sarah Jessica Parker, Marissa Tomei. Helena Bonham Carter, because she wanted to get out of the Merchant Ivory films. <laughs> Jim. Carter and Parker. Three name names. <laughs> Laura. Um, Sarah Jessica Parker. Know about Marissa Tomei? I, I want to say her too. Yeah, I'm not going to get on the Carter train. <laughs> uh, it is all of them. Oh, okay, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so Lauren gets one point, Jim gets two, and Laura gets two. <laughs> I'm getting left in the dust here. Should have gone with my first impulse. In addition to designing the choreography for the film, actress Gates McFadden was also initially slated to play what role? Uh, bonus point if you can guess why she didn't get the role. So was it the junk lady, Jareth's mother, Hoggle, or Sarah's mother? Uh, Jim. Sarah's mother. Because... Oh, what year was Labyrinth released? Nah, it's, yeah, it's not a not a scheduling conflict because uh, Star Trek didn't start until eighty seven. They weren't filming it that early. Um, they didn't want a redhead. Okay. Is she the doctor? Yeah. Every the crusher. Yeah. Okay. I do know. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Sorry, Star Trek fans. <laughs> we can <laughs> cut that out so you just sound confident. <laughs> oh. oh. Um, Jared's mother is in this movie? That's not a character in this movie. So maybe maybe the reason was they cut the character. Right. Yeah, that, that one threw me for a loop. Oh, sorry. Bonus points for the reason why she didn't get it. Right. Sure. I will go with Jareth's mother because they cut the part. I'm going to say Sarah's mother because they didn't actually have Sarah's mother. It was her stepmother in the film. So they went with a younger actress to make the evil stepmother trope work. (laughs) Uh, It was Sarah's mother, but nobody got the reason. It was really boring. Although Gates Metbadden was originally offered the role of Sarah's mother by Henson, and she signed up to do the choreography as well, like sort of a, okay, if I'm there already, I'll do it. Due to British labor laws, she was not allowed to act in the movie. 
Oh, and so she could was, only oh. do the choreography. So she was allowed to do that, but not the acting so it was part. One or the other. It was filmed in Britain, I imagine. Yeah. Or oh, was it? Well, well, why would British labor laws? Maybe because she's a is she a British citizen? Nope. I don't think so. Maybe it was filmed there then. It was filmed in tiny towns in New York and in Elstree Studios and West Wycombe Park in the United Kingdom. Uh, oh yeah, lots of studio filming happens in the UK. Like yeah, yeah they filmed okay. Star Wars there too. So she couldn't work in ta- Tanzania. Uh, There was a quote from her saying, even though that was the reason I took the job and had for two years been thinking that was what was going to happen, they would not allow us. Anyway, that sucks. Yeah. To be told for two years, oh, we have this role for you. And it wasn't even a big part. But it's like, it's a role. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we're going to talk about the witches. What Mr. Bean style disaster did Rowan Atkinson cause on the set of the witches? Uh, did he leave all the taps running in his dressing room and tell an assistant to go away and let him sleep instead of attending to the mess, uh, which resulted in almost all of the crew's electrical equipment on the floor below being destroyed? (laughs) How about lit the curtains in his hotel room on fire, resulting in the middle of the night evacuation of the whole building three times? (laughs) (laughs) Or misunderstood the director's instructions and drove off with one of the actresses for three days of vacation while both of them were supposed to be on set, resulting in weeks of delays while everything was rescheduled. Which of these disasters did he cause on set? I couldn't come up with another one. You get three options. <laughs> Kudos. Uh, the the, the two you made up are, are they're, good. They're all great. Oh. The one that actually happened is great too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like the curtain one. Curtains? That's great. All right, we'll go curtains. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with the, uh, with the scheduling snafu. He drove off. No points. He did, in fact, leave the taps running and not allow anyone to attend to it because he was <laughs> napping. <laughs> Why would you leave the taps running? Who knows? Like, this I just don't, <laughs> don't get. Yep, just uh, ruined a whole lot of electrical equipment by leaving his taps running. I didn't even know he was in the film. All I know about that film is Angelica Houston is in it. I didn't even know it was a Jim Henson movie. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where the Jim Henson part comes in, because there was a character called the Grand High Witch who had a lot of prosthetics and makeup on. Uh. Um, how long did the elaborate makeup effects for the Grand High Witch take to apply and remove each day? So how much of this person's day was taken up by makeup? Was it four hours a day, six hours a day, eight hours a day, or 12 hours a day? Six, because anything above six would be not feasible for a production. Jim? I'm going to say eight. I uh, remember the the stories of the, you know, Michael Doran's uh, yeah. call schedule for uh, TNG and DS9. Like, 8 is still a lot, because it's it's it, it's faster to remove than it is to apply. <laughs> but still. she Dax was a long time, too, because they had to paint every single yeah, one of those individual Michael, Michael yeah. Westmore chose her as the character to paint himself. The fancy makeup guy, he would do her makeup. Yeah. He did all the makeup design for Star Trek. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, he started... They started, like, writing things in the, the dots <laughs> yeah, partway through. They're, they're done with yeah. brown sharpie. Anyway, 12, it feels like it might be that ridiculous, but I don't know how much this character was in the movie. So if it was like a little bit, then I could see a couple days where this person just didn't sleep, basically, because all they did was wear makeup and act. Yeah, okay, I'll do 12. You nailed it. 
Uh, it was no not a way. prominent character, but according to Wikipedia, it took six hours to put the makeup on and six hours to take it off. No. I yeah. have to be very careful removing prosthetics. Or else they tear. Yeah. <laughs> so you gotta yeah, kind of like excavate them off the skin. Yeah, you have to use and the proper And it was dissolving. an extremely elaborate thing that they put together. Like, it is something. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen the film. Huh. I have seen it, and I recall not liking it one bit. <laughs> Anyway, that was an incredible amount of work that went into that makeup. What was mm-hmm. that other witch film from like the early nineties? Um, Return to Oz. No, I loved it had Return to three Oz. Three witches in it. Yeah, Hocus Are Pocus. You- Hocus Pocus. That's the one I was thinking of. That I've is seen one that. of the teams in my running thing. Oh yes, <laughs> Hocus Pocus. We should show the kids that. It's one. a good movie. Yeah, they, they might Huxley will get scared by it though. Maybe a couple more years. Yeah, Kira might also, but like it's fun. There's a lot more casual 90s misogyny than you'd remember. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just, mm. I just, just content warning. We, we mostly assume that now when we yep. go back and we're like, ugh. <laughs> In A Muppet Christmas Carol, the original script had established Muppets playing the ghosts of Christmas past, future, and present. Which Muppet was going to be the ghost of Christmas future? So before they rewrote it to make like new Muppets for that role, who was going to be the ghost of Christmas future? Was it Gonzo, Animal, Miss Piggy, or Scooter? Oh my god. I, even, <laughs> I can't imagine any of these characters. Right? I honestly, I, I don't even remember which one Scooter is. He was is he the, the one mouse? He's yellow, no. kind of nerdy looking. Yeah. With glasses, Just a human. Right? Yeah. Oh, that guy. Right. From the, <laughs> he, his uncle owned the Muppet Theater. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Animal was one of the options. Yep. The character is silent, so I feel like Animal, well, obviously, is not silent at all, but is unintelligible, <laughs> which is kind of, like, silent. There's no words. I'll go with Animal, I guess. Okay. I'm gonna go with Miss Piggy. Okay. Ugh, such a bad choice. Wow. No, no, not not for you. I mean, for, you know, the production, if, if well, they had done that, which they didn't, so. Miss Piggy played uh, Mrs. Cratchit. Mm-hmm. And Gonzo played Charles Dickens, or mm-hmm. Darl's Chickens, as he called it. <laughs> um, this is the the only Muppet movie I know Ashlyn has seen because I made her watch this one. <laughs> <laughs> it was less bad than I expected because it was Dickens. I like it. It's fun. Like I generally like Dickens, but I also yeah. like that movie. Scooter is too neurotic, so I'm also going to have to go with Animal. Laura's on fire. Miss Piggy. Obviously, because think of it. No, because the ghost of Christmas future is always presented in this like bright white light. It's beautiful. Which no, that's the ghost of Christmas past. No, it's not. I have no idea. That's the ghost of Christmas. Ghost of Christmas future is the Grim Reaper. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay, but never mind I would like to say that all four of these were in the running for one of the ghosts. Huh. <laughs> uh, both Gonzo and Animal, I think, were past, and Scooter was future. Gonzo and Animal was past. You mean Scooter was present? If Miss Piggy was future? Yeah, sorry. I have one more silly question for you, because I, I thought it was funny. Kate. What was the working name for Farscape when it was first being like worked on and pitched? What, what did they call it initially? Was it Misfits Ship? Space Race? Wormhole Extreme? Or going home. Is Firefly an option? <laughs> I think it's Laura up first. Wormhole Extreme. Wormhole Extreme. Yeah, let's go Wormhole. Space Misfits. That was not an option. 
What was the first one? Misfits Ship. Misfits Ship. <laughs> that one. Uh, it was, in fact, Space Race. Uh, Why? Space Race. Wait, uh, Wormhole Extreme is the <laughs> parody show that was on Stargate SG-1. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Where they made fun of the show on the show. Funny. Stargate SG-1 had a bunch of actors from Farscape joining yeah. in later yeah. seasons. So yeah, Claudia that was Black my and Bill <laughs> my little Jim Henson quiz. Fun. Adorable movie facts. Did anyone get Space Race? No one no. got Space Race. No, okay. It's very possible that I missed a couple of scoring things. I forgot I was scoring a couple times, but I believe we are all tied on five points for that wow. uh, quiz. <laughs> that sounds about right. These were a different set of Jim Henson facts that I have in my brain. Yeah, I know. Hey. and Because I, I know all of your fa- facts because you say them whenever we watch the movies. So I was careful to avoid those facts. <laughs> oh. Do I need to get kidnapped and get better stories? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I specifically avoided, like I put Gates McFadden was the choreography because I knew that that, that you know that because you say it every time we watch the movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. So at the end of all things, we have... Ashlyn at eight, Jem at eight, Lauren at eight, and Laura at 15. But we have to normalize the scores because Laura got to play at all of them, so she gets 11.25, which is still (laughs) much better than eight. Congrats, Laura! (laughs) Laura is today's trivia champion. everyone something nice so we can wrap up this recording laura i hear you have one i do i actually have a something nice um so my something nice isn't is something that actually hasn't quite happened yet um but uh, my best friend's getting married this week so Yay! i'm very excited for that so that's just been a lovely a lovely thing to uh to see come together and congrats and best wishes to them yeah my something nice is video games yay as of this recording, I have a couple days left of my summer break before I start start up med school again. Uh, and in between my other responsibilities, I have managed to squeeze in a couple of video games over the summer. And it has been really nice because I've had time to, to check in with some games that I've wanted to play for uh, a long time. Uh, in some cases, uh, games that I started and then didn't have time to con- to continue. So I'm almost through Disco Elysium now, which is just, I just, I love it so much. Um, it is, Laura would hate it. Um, it <laughs> is extremely political misery porn. <laughs> um, but it's all, you know, and, and it's like, it's a, you know, a sad dude game, but it is not written solely from that perspective and solely about that kind of character that is the protagonist, though. And it's extremely, uh, extremely political in, I think, uh, largely good ways and just narratively really interesting and from a game perspective, really interesting. So, um, yeah, I like it a lot. Uh, I also uh, finally... Uh, played and 100%ed Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Uh, I just thought it was a gorgeous game. The music and the art, uh, just lovely. The tone hits just the right notes for me. Uh, they fixed the combat compared to the first one, which was, uh, which you know, was not stellar. I not expected to like this one as much as I liked the first Ori game because I I had heard that basically, I guess spoilers for the Ori game, if anybody cares. 
But the villain in the first story game, like, has kind of a face turn at the end and, like, ends up kind of saving the day and and like that. The villain in this game, like, similarly, like, they, they humanize – they do a good job of humanizing the – and, you know, they're not human. They're animal and, you know, monster creatures and like that. But they do a good job of humanizing the villains and showing where they come from and showing how, like, trauma begets more trauma and how, like – People who do bad things can have can have understandable motivations, even if you don't like agree with them, and in fact think that their actions are reprehensible. That's all great. Uh, in this one, like the villain, like has a really sad story, and then does not have a face turn, but just is defeated and goes and does not see the error of their ways, basically. And it's very sad. And I, you know, a lot of people. We're like, well, the, the message of this game is that, you know, people who have endured trauma are villains and can't be better. And I'm like, no, that happens sometimes. Not every single person who has been hurt has to, like, become a hero at the end. I don't know. It's complicated. Good game, though, I think. Uh, and I've also been playing some games with friends, which is, which is nice. Uh... Uh, and even now that all of my friends are vaccinated, uh, I I played some couch co-ops a couple weeks ago, and we played Heave Ho on the Switch. Have you heard of this game, Ashlyn? No. You, you guys have a Switch. Give Heave Ho a shot. I laughed harder than I remember laughing in years playing that game. It is a comedy of errors. I recommend it. Excellent. Video games. They're fun. Heave Ho. We've been playing a lot of Jackbox games online still. Yeah, yeah. It's been really nice. There's a new one coming out that KO just showed us that um, is like Drawful, except you make two frames and they animate it. Oh. <laughs> so the prompt is whatever, you know, the bizarre things that they put out, and then you have to make a tiny little animation. That sounds fun. And Dave's comment was my favorite. He said, I don't think this will improve my drawing. <laughs> <laughs> My something nice is Ashlyn and I went for a very lovely hike yesterday at Beaudry Park. Even though it had been raining, it was a good walk. Everything was very green. And yes. you've played Celeste, right, Jim? I love Celeste. <laughs> the other night we watched a, um, it was Frame Fatales on uh, Games Done Quick. Mm -hmm. It's uh, all women speedrunners. Cool. And there was two different Celeste runs. Nice. You can look it up on the GDQ Twitch. And the one we watched was uh, bonkers. Benny percent doing the yeah. whole game on the B sides. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't know how to play the game still. I have no idea. It's, I died so many, and I I've know that's the it. deal with Celeste. Yeah. Is you die one million times. Mm -hmm. She died thirty eight times beating the whole game. Wow. <laughs> the. Uh... I, I love that game. Like, I like, I really love the story. The music, Lena Rain's music is amazing. Probably in my top five best mm -hmm. games of all time. I think Outer Wilds probably edges it out, but you have to be so precise. Yeah. Like it's and you wild. can, like, they also have really good, uh, Celeste has a really great assist mode. Like, you can basically change a bunch of things about how the game works to, uh, assist you in doing it. I was very proud that I had beat all of the A, B, and C sides <laughs> on everything, and then they released the the uh, the free update with the lat. And I'm st I've been stuck on the last screen for like <laughs> oh, a year. No. Every every like <laughs> or since they released it, every 
every few months I'll pick it up and do like a hundred deaths and can't quite make it through that last screen. <laughs> That's it. I went for a nice walk and then I watched people play video games. That's me. <laughs> uh, as I was saying earlier, I have joined a Battle of the Fans challenge in Fandom Running Club. Uh, they make a huge route. This one is like all along route the fancy highway in the state 66. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it is. Mm -hmm. Is it 66? Yeah. I don't really care. But as you add miles to your team, your whole team goes down the route. And so whichever team makes it to the end first, hooray, we win. Uh, we are basically dead last, our team. Team with the power, <laughs> not doing so well. We're trying to overtake team run like the wind, I think. I think is uh, gone with the wind fandom, maybe? Not 100% oh. sure. Uh, um, Forrest Gump, maybe? <laughs> I have no idea. When I signed up, I was like, hell yeah, Team Labyrinth. Apparently no one else shared my enthusiasm. We were like the last team to be filled and the saddest <laughs> team, but we're going to keep going. And it's really motivated me to get out and do more walks. Dave and I even walked home from, what, Moray and Ness the other day in the pouring rain because we're just like, I'm not giving up if you're not giving up. <laughs> ah, nice. Yeah, that's the way you do it. I was at home and I had offered to come and get them with the mm -hmm. car. And My shoes are still wet. By. I should have taken that up. <laughs> but it's been good. And because I signed up for that, I also signed up for a different challenge that started in January. And the idea was uh, a 365-mile route around New Zealand, starting at Hobbiton. Uh, and it's called Fans Run the World. I guess they're, the idea is they're going to pick a different country every year. I think this is the first one. But if you sign up and you finish it, you get a really sweet Hobbit medal. Hmm. So I'm going to try and do 365 miles by the end of the year. Good luck! <laughs> yeah. Wow. So starting at the end of August, we'll see what happens. <laughs> we do have a treadmill. Yeah, and um, you can count, I can count miles from my mini elliptical apparently also. So any elliptical treadmill pacing around your basement, tried that the other day. That was very dizzying. Oh, <laughs> Oof. Yeah. yeah. It was really wet outside. <laughs> <laughs> and our treadmill is set up such that when I stand on it in bare feet, I'm about a quarter inch from the ceiling tile. Nice. Mm. That's, that's safe. Really comfortable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not at all hunching. Yay. We all have something nice. 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 What are we talking about next month, Jem? Uh, <laughs> not that report. Yeah, yeah, I swear to God. Uh, let's talk about social contagion. Ooh. Ooh. I feel I feel like um social contagion has been in the in the news lately with all of this gender dysphoria. All the the bad science about like being trans being contagious, which it's not. <laughs> I've transed all my friends. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, we're we'll be talking about uh, like uh, like mass psychogenic illness. We we were gonna do this before, but we bumped it for one of the Phelps Bondaroff episodes. I think right. Yep, should yeah. be fun. Awesome! Thanks for joining me, everyone. Absolutely. Thank you, Ashlyn. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Oh, sorry. I forgot the good night. Good night. I love you all. <laughs>Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. 
Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newton. Well, and we wait for the plane. <laughs> so we're going to sandwich these quizzes uh, with the bummer in the middle. Guess who? Yes, indeed. This this podcast does count as a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but is it a soup? No, it is not a soup. No. We are not currently in a pool recording this. Otherwise, I would argue yes. No, no. Things in liquid. Just just having things in liquid does not make it a soup. What if it's a heated pool? But are you going to eat all of the people and the water in the pool? Somebody's going to eat some of it. It's still a soup whether or not somebody eats it. Agreed. Leftover soup is still soup. Yeah. Oh, so Huxley's spicy soup is truly a soup? No, no. Uh, I <laughs> might argue about edibility. Hey, all of the things that she puts in there is totally edible. Technically. Like, like multiple tablespoons of cinnamon and some <laughs> rose hips and chives and some jalapeno peppers. Basically whatever she finds in the garden and the spice rack. Amazing. Oh, and usually about half a bottle of honey. <laughs> but she always makes sure to put something spicy in because daddy likes spicy things. Awesome. <laughs> and she oh and then she makes me cook it. So the whole kitchen smells like that. She's very considerate. If you put a, like, a liter of water in there, that could make a really nice, like, winter spice smell going on. Like, I don't mind it, but it's just intense. That's and there's fair. always one thing that she puts in that. It's like, nope, and that just, that just, nope, nope, uh, nope. I love that this is, like, a recurring thing, apparently. <laughs> when, yeah. yeah. Anyway. So, so anyway, no, we're not a soup. Okay. <laughs> Lauren, do your quiz. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what series of wars was the partial cause of Charles II of England's ban on the import of Laura's face. <laughs> okay. It was really nice in the pandemic when there was no planes going overhead. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Laura is pro-pandemic. Shut up. What is wrong with you? Laura is pro-fossil fuel savings. Yes. Mm, yep. Can you say and the eels again? And the eels. I believe it was you who was saying it, but it was fine. Oh, and the eels. <laughs> Sorry. I don't even remember who said what. I'm so tired. And the eels. <laughs> <laughs> and the eels. <laughs> they're, not, they're not done spraying chemtrails yet. Yeah. In the book version, while shrieking eels are mentioned, the channel is full of airplanes. Planes. The channel is full planes. of airplanes. Can I please go close the windows and sure. at least make it quieter? Quick, while he's upstairs, read his questions. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're so depressing. I don't want to have to hear them twice. I can only imagine they're depressing. I don't actually know what they're about, but Jem wrote them. So. They're about climate change, so it can yeah, be exactly. a good story. Right? Where we somehow cap CO2 emissions at the current levels until the middle of the century. So this is not the most depressing scenario. This is the intermediate scenario. 
I do not understand why there are so many planes. <laughs> there, there, is, there is no way we're capping emissions, you guys. <laughs> the airplanes are basically just mooning us right now. Okay. We live under a flight path and we never have this many. We're going to skip over those because Laura is depressed enough already. We all are. Don't just put this on like, Laura. I'm just the one who's like, <laughs> I have to live with you after this. Well, you don't have to. <laughs> I saw that in your face, actually. <laughs> There's always divorce. Yeah, no, no, not until you're making money. Yeah. About this. Yeah, the alimony's going the wrong way yeah. if you divorce me it now. Either before you quit your job or in five, like six years from now. There's no one in between. Oh, there's 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 no alimony the when time. I'm in residency. Oh. Let's get this road in the show, shall we? Definitely a middle-aged dad. <laughs>